70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, KBS World Radio listeners. I am Kang Jung-hung from Zhejiang, China. First of all, congratulations on the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio. I've been listening to KBS World Radio since 2016. The channel's been with me ever since and offered me a lot of things, including knowledge on Korean society and life in Korea, as well as the latest news. I also learned through KBS World Radio that the Korean people, including the young people, are striving to make their lives better. From their stories, I realized we all have the power within us to make society and our lives better. Lastly, I want to wish all the staff members and hosts health and success. Happy 70th birthday. KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio. Seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Monday, the 20th of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Hwang Jao. The South Korean military has warned North Korea against a third attempt to launch a military satellite amid speculation that it may be imminent. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we'll explore Korea's looming demographic cliff and the ensuing labor crisis, as well as discussing whether immigration is the answer. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we look at how Korea began its World Cup qualifying campaign, the Asia Professional Baseball Championship, and the latest from the LPGA. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. South Korea has warned of a stern response if North Korea carries out a third attempt to launch a military reconnaissance satellite. This comes amid growing speculation that such an effort may come within days. Seoul's response could include a partial suspension of the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement aimed at diffusing cross-border tensions. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung. In-kyung, hello. Hello, Channel. So the warning comes amid growing speculation that a third attempt to launch a military spy satellite may be imminent. When does the South Korean military expect that launch to happen now? Defense Minister Shin Won-sik forecasts Pyongyang to launch the satellite as early as this week, before Seoul launches its first reconnaissance satellite on the U.S.'s Falcon 9 two-stage rocket from California's Vandenberg Space Force Base on November 30th. This is what he said on a KBS program on Sunday. Let's take a listen. 
In early November, we had assessed that North Korea may launch a satellite around the end of the month. That assessment still stands, and although I cannot get into the specifics, Seoul and Washington believe that preparations are underway for the launch to take place in about a week. The minister said the North is believed to have almost resolved its engine problems with help from Russia. Yes, Shin has been vocal about the need to suspend the inter-Korean military agreement from when he was a People Power Party lawmaker. The agreement was reached in 2018 and was aimed at diffusing cross-border tensions. Would suspending the agreement be part of the government's response to the North's potential satellite launch? Possibly. Shin said Seoul will swiftly begin discussions among relevant ministries to suspend the agreement if Pyongyang attempts to launch the satellite again. According to the government, the North has already broken the agreement on its side by flying drones over the Seoul metropolitan region and conducting artillery drills near the inter-Korean maritime border in 2019, and it has no will to keep the pact. I believe the Joint Chiefs of Staff expressed similar sentiments on Monday. Can you tell us more? In a briefing, Kang Ho-pil, chief director of operations of the JCS, urged Pyongyang to immediately halt related preparations and that the military would pursue necessary measures to protect the lives and safety of the South Korean people upon the launch. Here's what he said. Despite repeated warnings from the South Korea-U.S. alliance and the international community, North Korea is planning to go ahead with a military spy satellite launch. The launch would be a clear violation of the U.N. Security Council resolution that bans the North from launching missiles using ballistic missile technology and a provocation that threatens our national security. Kang's phrase, necessary measures, appears to allude to a partial suspension of the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement. Okay, let's move on now to President Yoon Sang-yeol, who is off to the UK and France this week on a seven-day trip. Can you walk us through his itinerary? Sure. The presidential plane took off from Seoul Air Base at around 10.45 a.m. and is scheduled to land in London on Monday local time. He's making a state visit to the U.K. at the invitation of King Charles III to mark 140 years of diplomatic relations between the two countries this year. On Tuesday, the President and First Lady Kim Gon-hee will attend an official welcoming ceremony, a royal luncheon and dinner. He's also scheduled to deliver a speech in English to the British Parliament and the two countries' cooperation in future relations. The next day, he will hold a summit with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to discuss cooperation in digitization, cybersecurity, nuclear power, the defense industry and semiconductors. On Thursday, the president will visit France to make a final pitch for Busan's bid to host the 2030 World Expo. This will be headed the final votes on the host city by the governing Bureau International Des Exposition next Tuesday. The British daily The Telegraph published an interview with the president on Monday ahead of his visit. Can you tell us about what the interview said? The president tried to persuade China to stay away from the seemingly cosy relationship between North Korea and Russia. He said the three countries have divergent interests and that alignment with Pyongyang and Moscow will be detrimental for Beijing. He also tried to appease China by saying that it is playing an important role in promoting freedom, peace and prosperity in East Asia. 
He asserted that Beijing will consider the harm to its reputation and international status resulting from trilateral cooperation with North Korea and Russia, which blatantly violate the UN Charter and Security Council resolutions, as well as other international norms. As for why South Korea is pursuing close security cooperation with the West, the president cited the war in Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas war, as well as heightened tensions in Russia, North Korea and the South China Sea. Did China offer a reaction to this interview? Yes, it did. But the appeasement doesn't appear to have worked. Referring to Yun's mention of the South China Sea, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said on Monday that issues related to Taiwan is entirely up to China and no external force should interfere in its internal affairs. Shifting to other news now, specifically the world of esports. South Korean esports team T1 defeated China's Weibo Gaming to win the 2023 League of Legends World Championship on Sunday, clinching a record fourth title. Uh, League of Legends, of course, a hugely popular multiplayer online battle arena video game. Uh, computer game, I should say, and the World Championship was one of the biggest events the sports had seen. So can you tell us more? Yes, T1, led by Faker, whose real name is Isangyuk, defeated Weibo Gaming 3-0 in the final held at Kuchak Skydome in Seoul on Sunday. T1 completely dominated the Chinese side to, re- to secure the team's first win in seven years and a fourth overall title. It was a huge deal for fans of the game, with Kuchak Skydome packed with tens of thousands of fans from home and abroad. There was also outdoor cheering at Gwangamun in central Seoul, like for football. And finally, the government's administrative computer network was fully restored on Sunday after suffering from a major systems failure just two days prior. Can you explain? According to a government countermeasures headquarters set up to address the issue, all services were up and running normally. To prevent a recurrence of similar incidents, the government began operating three situation rooms from Monday. But the government is yet to determine the exact cause of the network failure. Last Friday, the Seoul administrative network used by public workers went down, followed by a suspension of the government's one-stop civil service portal, Government24, virtually halting the issuance of civil civil documents by public agencies. Government24 services resumed on Saturday, while the Seoul system began operating normally from Sunday. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. With a historic low birth rate, South Korea is now facing what's called a demographic cliff. This is when the population of people aged between 15 and 64 and capable of working declines precipitously. American economist Harry Dent, who first presented this concept of demographic cliff, warns that it can cause production and consumption to shrink and eventually bring about an economic crisis. This is especially pertinent for South Korea now, with the global credit ratings agencies like Fitch Ratings warning that Korea will face rating downgrades by 2050 unless it averts the ongoing population decline. To talk about the impact of the demographic change on the South Korean economy and the solutions being pursued, including increased immigration, we have joining us on the line now Dr Darcy Drought from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Dr. Drought, hello, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Chang, for having me. 
Yeah, South Korea's cratering birth rate is a topic that we have discussed often on the show before, but we thought we'd look more broadly over this issue again to remind our listeners the scale of the issue at hand. So can you explain for our listeners what will South Korea's demographic makeup look like going forward if the nation stays on the current fertility rate of 0.7, which is the lowest among OECD countries? Yeah, so Korea's demographic change has really been in the news for the past couple decades, really. This is something that we've known about for a while. Um, If you think about what a stable population structure would look like, it it resembles a pyramid. So you have a broad base of younger individuals at the bottom and then fewer elderly individuals. So what this means is that younger people, as they come of age, they can work, they can participate in the economy, and they can um, help support those that are getting older. But what's happening in South Korea, as you mentioned, it's 0.78 children per women are born. A normal population, quote unquote, normal population would be about 2.1 children. And this is the case in most developed countries, typically. But we see a lot of changes going on in the world. So as you mentioned, South Korea's birth rate is less than one. This means that the replacement rate is just going to be facing a natural decline. So with fewer births, South Korea's population will shrink. And this shrinking population poses economic challenges, fewer workers, potential labor shortages, and strains on social welfare systems as well. Right. So I have some figures. With the current fertility rate, the population will shrink from the current 51.7 million down to 38 million by 2070, according to experts. And the population will consist of more elderly people as well. As you said, the working age population will fall from 72% in 2020 to 56% by 2040. So what repercussions will this have then? What will this mean for the nation and its economy? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is that we're going to face a workforce crunch. Just the numbers that you outlined right now really show the extent to which fewer Koreans are going to be doing the work in the economy. Um, so as older Koreans retire, there just going to be, aren't going to be enough people to take up all the essential roles that are needed to keep this big Korean economic machine running. So this leads to a workforce crunch. It's going to impact productivity. It's going to impact innovation and the overall economy. So what this means is we're really posed for an economic balancing act as this disparity between the working age population and then the elderly that's depending on them poses so many challenges that are not only economic, but it's also going to be um, impediments to social progress as well. Right. There are all sorts of issues that... Uh, could arise from this uh, population crisis. Uh, Today we'll be trying to focus on dealing with the shortage in the working age population and the labour crisis uh, specifically. There have been various uh, ideas and solutions raised over the years. One major one is, of course, immigration. Uh, The way to solve South Korea's population crisis, particularly the labour shortage, is to bring in more immigrants. In recent years, Korea has expanded short-term guest worker programs to address labor gaps, particularly in industries such as uh, manufacturing and agriculture. Long-term immigration is also starting to become more common, particularly through marriage migration. The government's commitment to increasing immigration can also be seen in the fact that this current administration is looking to open an immigration agency dedicated to all issues related to immigration. Uh, How effective do you think these policies can be? 
uh, Dr Drought. Can immigration be a solution, or at least a way to mitigate South Korea's population and labour crisis? Sure. I mean, if you think about it in its basic terms, if you're losing people and you're bringing more people in, then there is a certain way to offset the decline in population. And Korea has, as you mentioned, has a variety of policies for immigration, including short-term and long-term. But historically, as you mentioned, these have been separate issues, right? So you have this guest worker program um, that offers short-term contracts in various job sectors. Um, But the, the drawback of this sort of program is that workers then have to return to their home countries. So in short, the program will be a solution for short-term labor solutions, but it's not really going to help with the longer-term settlements. Um, the, on the, with longer-term settlements. So then on the long-term, you know, immigration in South Korea has been much more limited when we think about permanent residents or naturalized citizens. But over the past decade, Um, a little bit more, 15 years, the government's implemented such a slew of policies to encourage foreigners to move and live Korea. And as you mentioned, the marriage migration program, it's perhaps the most notable long-term immigration plan that South Korea has has implemented. So much so that now families with one foreign parent, um, usually a foreign foreign woman, are um, increasingly a larger part of Korean society. So on average, one in 10 marriages each year are with a foreign, uh, foreign person. So what this means is that South Korea's strategy, in order for it to be a long-term sustainable strategy to, affect, to respond to this demographic uh, so, you know, crisis, it really needs to tackle not just the issues of labor markets, but the really complex social issues that are woven into all of these sorts of issues. Right. So with all that in mind, then, what are your thoughts on the current immigration policies uh, of South Korea, the current administrations? Uh, It seems that there are perhaps uh, more that can be done, that there are gaps. Yeah, well, I will say, you know, the Korean government has adopted a very proactive and some might even say interventionist strategy to help with these complex problems. I've, in my research, I've spoken with countless government officials, politicians, advocacy organizations in Korea, and I know that there's a very sustained, concerted, and systematic uh, effort to tackling all of these issue areas. So I think that a, a lot of the recommendations that we continue to talk about um, social issues, issues of social integration, language or cultural gaps, um, all of these are. You know, these are issues that are being rushed on Korean society. Um, And so the cultural programs, the integration, the language classes the government has been implementing are really, you know, they're they're, they're trying to fit the bill. But the problem is is they're just too quick for um, society to catch up. Right. One of the criticisms about... Uh, well, not, perhaps criticism is perhaps not the right word, but one of the concerns that has been raised about uh, the increased immigration policies are that perhaps the argument that Korea is not, quote-unquote, ready for more in, uh, immigration. Korea has long considered itself a so-called homogenous society uh, where immigrants are still a a small minority of the population. I believe as of uh, December 2021, foreign nationals make up only about 3.8% of Korea's uh, population. So what are your thoughts on this argument that perhaps uh, Korea uh, might not be ready for uh, massively increasing uh, immigration right away? 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a common uh, criticism, and I, I, you know, I take a little bit issue with its framing because to say that Korea's not ready um, to deal with people that are different from them, I think that kind of undercuts um, a lot of the work that can be done, both at the kind of social level and the group level, um, but also people themselves. I mean, in order to confront some of the biggest problems, not just about immigration. But the bigger social and political problems that Korea has to face today, the Korean public, it's going to require some work. And, and this is something that Korea has done over time, right? It's, it's, it's part of, you know, the, the, the idea of, of rushing for productivity. I think that this is something that um, can be adopted. Um, the, the problem then is, is about um, um, making a concerted effort on the part of both the host society and uh, the migrants coming in. Mm. Right. It's certainly uh, an issue that uh, has concerned many. Uh, but uh, aside from integration, what are some other ways that South Korea, do you think, can make up for the working age population uh, crisis that we're facing at the moment? And how effective do you think they can be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this question, I think, is also directly related to the, the previous one. Um, and in fact, I think Korea can integrate the same strategies for both immigrants and for citizens. In fact, there has been a lot of push to help, you know, uh, you know, help incentivize women and families to grow, to have more than one or two children. And this is a variety of the government's put out uh, um, economic incentives for education and childcare. You know, there has been a shift in workplace culture, the long maligned work, um, workforce culture in Korea. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of these cultural shifts affect them as well. And that, those are the ones that are preventing families from growing. Um, and then the other one that I think is really important um, is to utilize automation to help bolster activity. So while the birth rate is declining, we can help offset labor shortages um, in new innovative ways as well. And this is something that um, Korea can be poised to be a, a, global, a global leader as it makes this demographic transition. Um, and then the, finally, I think that, you know, further in, uh, investment, which Korea is, is definitely uh, has a track record of doing in education and training to equip not just the next generation of Koreans, but all generations with essential skills. So this could include um, elderly Koreans as well um, to find jobs that are suitable to help, um, you know, help with social and economic progress. Um, and, and in order for these to be effective, right, it needs to be regularly adapted to the changing workforce needs. Right. So uh, perhaps it seems, it sounds like uh, you're saying that there needs to be greater cultural and societal uh, shifts uh, as well that come with uh, government policies. The discussion over South Korea's population crisis and the consequences it is facing are often described in very bleak terms, both at home uh, in Korea and abroad. Uh, but I saw in a piece that you wrote for the Korea Economic Institute and you said South Korea's journey to navigate the population cliff is a formidable task, but it's one that the nation known for its resilience and adaptability <laughs> is well equipped to undertake. That's certainly quite a more perhaps hopeful tone than uh, some have adopted uh, over the years. What do you mean by that? And with that in mind, how would you advise the uh, Korean government to navigate the population cliff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've learned this um, from studying Korea for a long time, but um, it's commonly said to, you know, don't don't bet against Korea. They've, you know, overcome such enormous odds so that when we talk you know, about 
you know, the, the, the national division, the war, rapid development, democratization, globalization. Um, but I think that when we talk about Korea society or culture as something that's closed, as something that's stuck in the past, gives, you know, overlooks these ways in which Korea has been resilient. And so I think that this is another challenge. It's an aspect of Korea being a global country. Um, and being not just a global country, but a global leader, um, that these are questions that they inevitably have to answer, whether it's now, whether it's in five years, whether it's in 50 years. Um, the fact that their um, population is shrinking just um, sheds uh, a bit more urgency on, on those sorts of cultural uh, questions that they're facing. Right. There's certainly a lot of challenges that Korea uh, will have to face moving forward, but hopefully we can take them on uh, head on uh, and succeed as we have done in the past, as you have uh, suggested. Uh, That is certainly a hopeful tone that we'd like to take moving forward. That's we're going to leave it for today. We've been speaking to Dr. Darcy Drought from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Thank you once again for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 21.35 points, or 0.86% on Monday, to close the day at 2,491.20. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 14.02 points, or 1.75%, to close at 813.08. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 5.31 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,291.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang Welcome back. Yes, thank you. It's good to see you again. So let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us? Many in Korea are reading about tragic news that's been making the headlines. A man in his 70s died last Friday from a rock thrown by an 80-year-old. Since the boy who threw the stone was under the age of 10, the bereaved family is devastated as they cannot even hold him accountable. This incident has sparked a debate as to who needs to be held accountable for violent crimes committed by juveniles. Yes, this is really a heartbreaking story, but one that has also sparked intense public debate, as you said. Right. Can you walk us through what happened exactly from the start? At around 4.30 p.m. last Friday, a man in his 70s was found dead in an apartment complex in Seoul's Noan district, and the police began an investigation. According to Seoul Noan Police Station and Gangbuk Fire Station, the deceased died after being struck in the head by a rock that fell from about 10 floors up while walking inside the complex. The fire department was dispatched after receiving a report that someone had collapsed and was bleeding, confirmed that he had already passed away, and and handed the case over to police. Right, he was reportedly helping his ailing wife up to the entrance lobby as well. Right. And you said it was discovered that the rock was thrown by an eight-year-old boy. That's right. During the police investigation, police found that the perpetrator was an elementary school student who lived in the same building. The boy said that he threw the rocks as a joke without thinking about it. Three rocks the size of an adult's fist were found around the accident site. Authorities plan to investigate the parents of the boy as well as another child 
child who was supposedly at the scene at the time of the incident. But as those under the age of 10 cannot face any legal consequences under Korean law, the 80-year-old boy will not be punished. Right, so despite killing someone, he is not criminally liable because of his young age. Mm -hmm. Understandably, it's been devastating for the victim's family, but this has also become an issue of social debate regarding accountability, right? Yes, it has. On one hand, there are people using this incident as an example of why the age of criminal responsibility should be lowered. Currently, under Korea's Juvenile Act, children aged 10 to 13 are considered law-breaching minors and are exempt from any criminal punishment. And as I mentioned earlier, those under the age of 10 are considered law-violating children, it cannot be legally punished. On the other hand, attention has also moved to the parents of the elementary school student, with some people saying that they should be held accountable for their son's actions instead. Yes, I do wonder how this sort of case might be dealt with in other countries. It's certainly a difficult situation and just a sad story Mm. all around. Uh, Our thoughts go out to the deceased family. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, move on to our second story. What do you have for us? We've seen many clips of salmon jumping against the current during their annual migration. They come back to the stream where they were born because they know for sure that it's a good place to spawn. Mm. However, in Korea, the number of salmon returning to rivers after going out to sea is decreasing every year and their habitat is moving upstream as well. Okay, so how bad is the situation? Can you tell us the numbers? Uh, let's use Namdechan Stream located in Yangyang County as an example. This year, the number of salmon that returned to the stream is only about 1,800, which is 60% of last year's figure. Also take in mind, the number stood at 26,000 10 years ago, so you can see just how bad the situation is. The domestic salmon return rate, which averaged 1.04% in the 1990s, has fallen to 0.6% into 2010s. According to an official from the Korea Fisheries Resources Agency to predict that this is all because of the rise in sea temperature. Right, I understand that this is an issue that's been seen around the world, including countries like the US, Russia and Japan. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's the rise in water temperature that's causing the marine ecosystem in Korea to change as well. That's right. Over the past 55 years, the water temperature in the East Sea has risen 1.82 degrees. As the water temperature in Korea's coastal waters is expected to rise by 0.7 to 1.8 degrees by 2050, it's predicted that it'll become increasingly difficult to spot the salmon run. And evidence supporting this prediction can be seen in Bukchon Stream in Kosong County, which is located in the northern part of the country and is around 1 to 2 degrees colder than Namdechan Stream. Over the past 10 years, while Namdechan Stream was, saw a sharp decrease in the num- number of salmon, the figure increased by, by about 24 times in Bukchan Stream. Yes, it's certainly alarming to see how rapidly we're seeing these sorts of changes in ecosystems and animal behaviour, mm. seemingly due to climate change. It's one of uh, many warning signs that we are unfortunately seeing. Right. Okay, let's uh, move on to our final story. What else has been trending today? 
It was discussed on our news briefing segment that South Korea's T1 won the 2023 League of Legends World Championship Finals on Sunday at Gochok Skydome in Seoul. The fact that the Korean team won the championship four times now is definitely one thing, the, uh, thing to celebrate. But the direct and indirect in- economic effects of the game brought to Korea is something we should take a closer look at. Mm. It's been five years since the country last hosted the championship and fans in Korea and from overseas were serious about watching and celebrating the final game. Yes, it has understandably been making headlines in Korea. So how big is the estimated economic impact of the championship? So the stadium accommodates 18,000 people and its ticket prices range from 80,000 to 245,000 won. This means that the revenue related to ticket sales alone is about 4 billion won or 3 million US dollars. However, tickets for the final, which sold out in less than 10 minutes, cost around 3 million won, more than 12 times the revenue regular price. So it's believed that the economic effect is way bigger than expected. Related industries, including esports, estimate that the direct and indirect economic effects of hosting the 2023 championship will amount to 200 billion won. That's about 154 million US dollars. It was also discussed on our next week from Seoul segment last week how the city held events and installed screens in Gwangmun Square so that those who can't get tickets uh, could watch the game. That must have also added to the economic impact. Right. More than 5,000 people gathered at the square to watch the game live. But that's not all. All seats at 44 movie theaters nationwide where the championship finals were broadcast live were sold out, excluding only the Jeju region. The ticket price for that seat was 28,000 won, which was more than twice as high as that of a regular movie. Considering the various consumption effects of foreigners who came to Korea to watch the finals and those who cheered in Gwangamun Square and movie theaters, the estimation that the final game brought in 200 billion won is not an exaggeration. Yes, it's big business to say the least. It's probably only going to get bigger. Right. That's where we're going to leave it for today's career trending. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's our weekly segment now, Monday Sports Roundup, where we review the latest sporting stories, headlines and results from Korea. And helping us do that as ever, we have sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yonhap News Agency. He joins us on the line now. Ji-ho, hello. It's uh, great to have you on again. Yeah, it's great to be here too. So South Korea kicked off their Football World Cup qualifying campaign last week. The Taeguk Warriors took on Singapore on Thursday in what turned out to be a very comfortable 5-0 win. Next up will be China on the road Tuesday night. But first, let's recap the win on Thursday. Jiho, another impressive scoreline from Klinsman's Korea. Uh, impressive indeed. And five different players scored for South Korea in their 5-0 victory in Seoul. And these are the five guys that are pretty much the biggest stars in Korean football today. Uh, you had Cho Gyu-sung scoring the first goal in the end of first half, uh, Hwang Yi-chan and, of course, Son Heung-min, followed by Hwang Yi-jo and, of course, Lee Gang-in, uh, four goals in the second half at Seoul Workers Stadium for, for the home team. Now, Korea had trouble getting through the tight Singapore defense in the uh, early going, uh, but it took a, uh, just a brilliant setup by Lee Gang-in uh, to assist the Cho's first goal, uh, just a beautiful pass through the back line. Uh, Cho sneaking behind the defense, wide open, just devouring it home. 
Um, and then they really, I guess, opened the floodgates in the second half. And Son Heung-min scored a vintage Sony goal, uh, left-footed curler cur- 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 from uh, from just outside the box after cutting back from the right wing toward the middle. Uh, now Korea have scored at least four goals in three straight matches for the first time since 2000. Uh, that's encouraging to see them put up some big numbers against uh, crowded defenses, something that this country has had trouble against in the past. But now it uh, seems like they could just go out there and score four or five goals at, at pretty much ease. Right. Uh, well, the first half was a little bit frustrating with Singapore uh, defending quite well. But then eventually, once that first goal went in, the floodgates opened and it was very encouraging to see, uh, especially in the second half. But uh, perhaps we can't get too carried away. Singapore uh, was the weakest opponent in their group and China should prove to be a sterner test tomorrow, right? Even if Korea is well above them in the rankings. Yeah, you know, China... That's an interesting opponent to to really uh, go up against, especially on the road, because they tend to be really, really physical. And the fans, uh, they tend to be really ruckus. It could be intimidating, I think, for some players, but obviously this Korean team is very experienced. Uh, I think they're going to be just fine. Now, in terms of rankings, uh, Korea, number 24, China, checking it in 79. And Ch- Korea have dominated the head-to-head meeting so far, uh, you know, winning, you know, pretty much every match that they've played since losing that uh, World Cup qualifying match through the uh, 2018 window uh, and under a different regime, uh, a lot of different groups of players. Um, so, you know, under the teams that Korea tend to play against, they kind of tend to be play really physical football, especially China, I think. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, I, I think they even kind of, kind of found out the hard way against Singapore that way with Sony taking a I guess some unnecessary kick to the knee mm. uh, toward the end of the and then the match when they're out when they're up for nil at the point. So uh, I think against China especially they're gonna have to stay above the fray and not really get dragged into that kind of stuff when the Chinese players get into some physical playing. Right. Uh, you know now just looking at the uh, overall record for Korea recently. Remember when Klinsmann was winless in the first five matches, everybody was calling for his head, <laughs> and now. He's still getting booed, by the way, when he's getting introduced at home. But the team has won four in a row, uh, you know, including friendly matches. They've scored 16 times and considered zero goals in that stretch. So, you know, say what you will about the opponents, but you can only play the team in front of you. And you score 16 times and giving up zero in four games. Hmm. That's a pretty good stretch. Right. We'll see if the team can keep up this very impressive run going. Uh, Once again, that game is taking place on Tuesday, tomorrow at 9pm, Korea time against China. Turning to baseball now, South Korea lost to Japan in the final of the under-24 Asia Professional Baseball Championship on Sunday. The teams went to extra innings and Japan scored twice in the bottom of the 10th to win 4-3 at the Tokyo Dome. So, Jiho, it was a disappointing result in the end, but it was still a valuable learning experience for the young Korean team, right? Yeah, so a lot to take away from this, uh, this loss for Team Korea. In fact, they lost to Japan twice, 2-1 uh, to one in the preliminary round. But the two rivals ended up with the two best records after round-robin action after they had each defeated Australia and Chinese Taipei. So Japan with a 3-0 record, Korea 2-1 record, two best teams after round-robin that met in the final Sunday night. And Korea opened the scoring thanks to Lo Shihwan's two-run double in the third inning. Uh, Japan got a run back with uh, Shugo Maki's solo shot in the fifth and tied things up 
with Kiraki Sato's uh, sacrifice fly in the sixth. They went to the extra innings, and the teams had uh, runners on first and second with nobody out to begin uh, the proceedings. Now, Korea hitting in the top of the 10th inning, they actually hit into a double play, uh, left them with that runner on third, but Yoon Dong-hee came through with the RBI single up the middle to give Korea a 3-2 lead. Uh, no Shiwan followed up with a single, putting runners at the corners, but they could not score any more runs in that inning. And uh, Japan made them pay. Uh, they tied the score with the uh, bases loaded sack fly. And then uh, in, in, on an intentional walk, loaded the bases once again for Japan. And Makoto Kadawaki, the MVP of the tournament, delivered a game-winning single off the closer uh, Chung Hae-young. But, uh, yeah, as far as the learning, learning experience, a lot of the t- under-24 players for Korea, really the first time that they played in, uh, in Tokyo Dome, which, is, can, which can be a pretty intimidating place to play with uh, close to 40,000 people right on top of them, just cheering against them, uh, cheering, cheering on them to lose against Japan. So for them to really battle Japan really hard uh, at that stage, uh, I think it's going to really help those guys going forward. Moving swiftly on to golf now, the Korean player Amy Yang won the final LPGA tournament of the season in Florida for her fifth career title and the first since February 2019. She also hit a $2 million jackpot in prize money, which is more than what she'd made the whole season before this week. So I guess better late than never for Yang than Jiho. Yeah, it's a pretty good day of work when you can make $2 million, uh, you know, shooting a 66 Six on the point in the final round to finish at 27 under for Yang Hyung at the uh, CME Group Tour Championship, holding off Nasa Hataoka and Allison Lee by three shots. Now Yang trailed Hataoka early after starting the final round, tied for the tied for the lead with the Japanese player, but Yang held off from about 80 yards out for an eagle on the par four 13th to grab the lead, uh, closed up with birdies at the 17th and the 18th uh, to win by three. So Yang's four previous titles had come in Korea and Thailand, and this is her first win in, uh, on the U.S. soil. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting story. Well, I shouldn't say really interesting, but Yang contemplated retirement at the age of 34 this year because of a nagging elbow injury, mm. which she picked up during her, I guess, overzealous pursuit of rock climbing. So, uh, you know, there was a time when she considered just quitting, uh, mm-hmm. Even this year, but she held it together, came back, tried to stay patient and positive, and really paid off in a big way with a $2 million prize money, which is the largest payout in women's golf. Yes, I'm glad. I'm sure she's glad she stuck with it uh, mm-hmm. in the end. Uh, finally, let's go to speed skating because the Korean star Kim min Sun grabbed two medals at the second ISU World Cup stop of the season in Beijing over the weekend. Uh, Gio, I understand that she changed her skates for the new season and it looks like she's rounding to form now. Right, so Kim min won bronze medal in the first of two 500-meter races in Beijing on Friday and picked up the silver medal on Sunday in the second 500-meter race. She had finished fifth in the World Cup season opener earlier this month. Bit of a slow start for her after she won five silver World Cup titles uh, during the last season and finishing second in the uh, sixth and the final World Cup last season. Uh, you know, changing skates, that's a big, uh, a big, big change uh, for, for speed skaters. But she's taking a little bit of a risk uh, to maybe take the next step forward. Uh, after finishing off the podium, she's now grabbed two medals in one stop. Uh, looks like she's really rounding, form, run, run, rounding into form as the season progresses. 
Okay, that's all for our roundup this week. Jiho, thank you for the updates, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay, thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Austin Dean, first baseman for the LG Twins, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to Morning Edition Preview now, our closing segment, where we look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Nice to see you again. Okay. So what do you have for us first today? So the 2023 Billboard Music Awards was held on Sunday evening in Las Vegas. So that is Monday morning for us in Korea. I previously talked about how Stray Kids and New Jeans were going to perform and how they were nominated for some awards. Mm. Well, Hong Yu's article in the K-pop section of the Korea Herald tells us how those groups fared, as well as the other K-pop acts that were vying for an award. Okay, so walk us through which K-pop acts won awards at the ceremony. Well, Jungkook of BTS won the top global K-pop song award with his single Seven. This is the singer's first win as a solo artist, but this is his 13th Billboard Music Award <laughs> if you count the ones he got with BTS. Sure. Stray Kids were named winners of the top K-pop album award with uh, five stars. Uh, it placed first on uh, Billboard 200 chart in June this year and stayed on the chart for 16 weeks. Okay, so I believe this means that Stray Kids becomes only the second K-pop boy group to uh, receive an award at the BBMAs. Yes, the first being BTS. Uh, New Jeans won the top global K-pop artist award. This is due to their impressive achievements they have made in such a short space of time. The group debuted last year and is already a household name. Mm. And finally, Blackpink took home the top K-pop touring artist award. I'm not surprised because the Born Pink tour was huge. We talked about that on the show a few times. Around 1.8 million people went to see the K-pop group perform live. Yes, all the acts, I'm sure, uh, feel honoured to receive the awards. Mm. But I did notice something. The categories, they were all related to K-pop. They were. Two of them were new additions this year as well. Uh, K-pop acts were nominated in other categories. 50-50, which now only has one member, was nominated for the Top Duo or Group Award. And Jungkook's bandmate Jimin was up for the Top Selling Song Award, but they didn't win. Uh, so I w- really wouldn't say it was a successful award show for K-pop in general, mm. uh, as all the prizes were related to the genre, but at least fans of the acts were able to celebrate the wins. Indeed. Perhaps it signals a bit of a lull in the K-pop global mm. uh, f- craze that we've seen in recent years, especially with BTS, but uh, I guess we'll see uh, next year how they fare. And also this year, Taylor Swift did a lot. <laughs> she <laughs> took a lot of awards and there was sure. an American country singer who also took a lot of awards. So. Right, so yes. So she's dominated the headlines this year, <laughs> yes. it seems then. Okay, let's uh, move on. What's the next article that you have for us? This time I have chosen something from the front page of the Korea Times. The article was written by Lee Min Young. It's about AI. Specifically, it's about how experts are urging South Korea to change how it trains AI specialists. They claim that Korea lags far behind global peers in the number of AI experts and related educational infrastructure. Okay, that's a stark warning. Just how far behind is Korea compared to other countries? Well, the Canadian AI company, Element AI, places Korea 22nd in the world when it comes to the number of such specialists. There are about 2,500, which is only 0.5% of the global total. The article mentions that the reason why experts believe Korea has a weak profile globally is because there is no cohesive education system here. Countries like the US and China have well-organized education systems that are headed by the governments. 
Right, but they're not headed by the government here in Korea then? So, so apparently multiple government ministries are pursuing their own systems, but they are doing it by themselves without any uniformity. Right, okay. Another issue experts point out is that the country needs to enhance basic AI education in elementary, middle and high schools. The article goes into more detail about the country's AI systems and how they need to improve. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting read because AI is already becoming so important for many industries. Yes, it definitely sounds interesting. Uh, definitely check it out. on the front page of tomorrow's Korea Times. That's why we wrap it up for today's morning edition preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. That wraps up our show for today. Do join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon j a n g w o and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-woo helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio.